Oh, what a great day to be together. We, uh, every week we send out a, an email to our church about what we'll be looking at in the scriptures. It's a preparing for worship email that goes out and there are titles on there for morning and evening worship with the text that we'll be doing. And someone came up to me today and said, was the email wrong this week? And I said, no, no, it wasn't. After Last Sunday evening, when we were in Ephesians 2, a few people came up to me and said to me, what you just preached needs to be preached to everybody in this church. Of course, many of you, for various reasons, are not with us in our evening service. And I said, well, I'll go talk to the elders. If the elders would like me to do that, I'll be glad to do that. And so they did immediately. And the elders came to me almost immediately and said, that's fine. So this morning... We're going to take our Bibles and go to the book of Ephesians. If you want to hear Luke's message, come back tonight. Because we will be in Luke tonight. Ephesians, we are looking at Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to begin today by having us think of our world. The world in which we live and the ever-increasing polarization that we are seeing in our day and age. We are currently living in and witnessing the polarization of people against one another at lightning speed and it is fueled by ever-increasing vehement hatred. It doesn't seem to really matter what sector of life you you actually go to and look at the level of alienation and disdain for others is rampant everywhere. There is hatred within homes, neighborhoods, where one person lashes out at the others simply because they don't like what that person is doing or what that person has just said. There is hatred expressed in the workplace. Why? Because belief systems clash. So that a disgruntled employee lashes out in anger and rage against fellow workers in various forms and in various ways, causing all kinds of trouble. Societies are under a full frontal assault within their own boundaries because ideologies about the meaning and the beginning of life are denied so that the murder of the helpless becomes commonplace and is even accepted by the masses as normal and right. The defining of the family as being between one man and one woman is viewed in our day as bigoted against homosexuality. And now there is assumed alienation against those who say that gender is fluid and any person can decide on a whim what gender they're going to be. Differing ethnic groups divide and rage against other ethnic groups simply because one ethnic group has more melanin in their skin than the other. Violence is around every corner. 
you go to the grocery store or to the schoolyard, there is violence. It would seem as if we live in the worst of times as skirmishes and wars break out all around us. Let's not think naively, it is true. We are living in dangerous and sinful days. And yet, when we take a look back in history, particularly that of the ancient world, we learn that all of the barriers and all of the alienation that our modern world is facing as man comes against man, all of the ethnic separation, all of the social separation, all of the global national clashes between countries are no more than what was taking place thousands of years ago between Jews and Gentiles. Since last Sunday evening, I've thought a lot about this message, and certainly it can come across in some ways in the ears of us to be somewhat anti-Semitic. Today is not a message against Jews in any kind of way. In fact, our Savior has come to us from the Jews, and for that we are eternally grateful. And as Christians, we love all people as people. The alienation between Jew and Gentile in biblical times was clear and it was severely dangerous. In fact, it is this very reason that we see what is happening today in the Middle East happening. It goes all the way back to the conflict between Isaac and Ishmael. In the days when Jesus walked upon His creation and ever since then, the mindset of the religious Jew was that those who were not Jew, that they were simply created to fuel the fires of hell. So if you are here today not part of a Jewish heritage, that's how the religious Jew in ancient days viewed you. In fact, In ancient Jewish society, it was tradition. In fact, it was not even lawful to help someone who was a woman who wasn't a Jew. If she was in labor with a child, you couldn't even help her give birth. Why? Just because she was bringing another pagan into the world. The hatred wasn't just one-sided. It wasn't expressed from Jews to others only. But those who were non-Jews, the Gentiles, expressed hatred for the Jew as well. Many a Greek philosopher of that day said that anyone who was non-Greek, i.e. anyone who wasn't Gentile, was only a barbarian. In fact, the Greeks said, quote, Greeks wage an endless war against barbarians, unquote. See that playing out? in our world today. Gentiles are in a perpetual hatred of Jews. And so if you were to grow up in that kind of society, that kind of social hatred was inbred in you. It was what you were taught. It was systemic. 
to your upbringing. No matter what side you were on, no matter if you were a Jew or a non-Jew, you knew nothing else. And so this kind of collision, this kind of crash between societies, this alienation between human against human was inevitable. And sadly, sadly, it comes into the church. And of course, none of this alienation is the expression of the likeness of Jesus Christ. Why? Because this kind of alienation only divides. And yet it is in and through Christ, it is only in the truth that we actually find unity. And of course, we understand you've been studying with us in the book of Ephesians, you understand that Paul is writing to the Ephesians and to that church, which is a Gentile church. In fact, a church planted in one of the centers of Gentile society in the city of Ephesus. They were a religious people. They worshipped the goddess Diana. Why? Because it was believed that she was the god of fertility. If we worship the god of fertility, we will maximize our multiplying factor and expand our people. And so it's no wonder that religiously there would be ethnic clashes that would come. And so in order to combat that destructive nature of disunity in the church and to show the world because of the example within the church to show the world what true peace and unity would look like and that it was possible, the Apostle Paul explains as he launches out in this letter of Ephesians, even back in chapter 1, he explains the wonder and majesty of all that each and every Christian has by being unified in Jesus Christ. All that we have because God, to whom which we were alienated before God saved us to Himself, has brought us together and unified us in Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 is filled with all the glorious heights of that truth. All that we have by being un in union with Christ. And then, and then you come to chapter 2 where we are in our current study in Ephesians. And it takes us back. Back to a look at the reality of who we were before God saved us. In other words, in our alienation to God. He shows us in verses 1 through 10 that we were dead. We were dead to God. We wanted nothing to do with God because of our own sin, our own disobedience to Him. And therefore, being saved had nothing to do with us. It was all a work of God. And we are His masterpieces, as verse 10 says. We are His workmanship. That's a masterpiece of God. And He has recreated us to work for Him. By union with Jesus Christ, God through His Spirit and by His power to save us and make us alive, as it says there in verse 5 of chapter 2, we have been recreated. We are a new person now in 
Christ. But all of that can be easily upended by disunity. All of that can be troublesome in the church, the beacon of light to a dark world that knows nothing of unity. And so while the Gentiles were nothing but dogs to the Jews, and the Jews were nothing but barbarians to the Gentiles, the Apostle Paul says to this Gentile church and to every Christian since then, these words, beginning in verse 11, he says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, because through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father." Our world is filled with alienation. We know that. We, we've been part of that even in our own lives. We, we see it. We've spoken words that cause others to be separated from us. We've done things in our lives sinfully that separate others. We have hated others wrongfully. We have helped fill the world with alienation. Why? Well, if we are reading correctly in this text and understanding it as we ought, then we can clearly see that the problem in our world, the problem with alienation in our world and in our hearts is not a social problem. It is not a cultural problem. It is not a governmental problem. It is not an ethnic problem. The problem in our world with alienation and the problem whereby churches disunify and what we see and what destroys the churches is a spiritual problem. And of course, we already understand that the greatest problem with mankind is that he is alienated from God because of sin. clear in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. They make that patently clear. The spiritually dead only do what is of spiritual deadness. Therefore, because of spiritual deadness, those who are spiritually dead, which is all of us unless God saves us, only live unrighteously. Why? Because righteousness is found only in and through God. 
You cannot find it your own way. And the spiritually dead hate God, and so they are unable and unwilling to come to God, and so they exercise their spiritual alienation. How do they do that? They exercise it through societal alienation. They kill and maim and destroy and run from and separate from those whom they hate. The sad part of that reality is that far too often even we who are Christians allow that to infiltrate the church. And so we too treat others with contempt. We too refuse to be with others. Not for righteousness sake. Not for righteousness, not because we're standing on the truth of God with the heart of honoring God in all things. No, not because of truth, no, but sinfully. That, beloved, has the potential of being acute, particularly here in this Gentile church in Ephesus. So, in order to bring truth to bear to that situation, Paul first reminds these believers of their past. He's done that already by taking us past way back to the very beginning of our lives, to humanity in general. We're all dead in sin. But now Paul is getting more personal with we who claim to know Jesus Christ, with believers, and he shows us the past contrast between Jew and Gentile when it came to our lives before God even saved us. Notice, notice that he uses the term in verse 11, flesh. Flesh. You who are the Gentiles in the flesh. And then he uses it back in the final part of that verse as he makes that parenthetical statement, those by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands. In other words, that which is worldly, that which is of fallen humanity. Now, of course, being saved by God, they are Gentiles in the Spirit. There were Jews in the flesh, and now there are Jews in the Spirit. And Paul uses this term that describes that reality. At one point, you were of the flesh. You were of your human nature, of your fallenness. Now you're not like that. You're not fleshly. You're not human in that sense, dead to God. Paul's simply describing both groups by their external realities. The Jews had focused everything on the external. The distinctions were all societal. The distinctions were all religious. The Apostle Paul wants these Gentile believers to know that even then, in the eyes of God, they were even in that sense, even as pagans, disadvantaged as a people. And it's interesting because he lists five different ways in which they were disadvantaged here. You notice that Verse 10, he says, at that time, remember that you were at that time. At what time? At that time when you were outside, you were 
formerly, you, you Gentiles, when you were in just your humanness, you were separate from Christ. That's what he says first. You were at that time separate from Christ. You say, in what way? In what way were they separate from Christ? I mean, obviously in the way of spiritually separate from Christ, but in a practical sense, when it came to the Jews, they were separate in a Romans 9 kind of way. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, Paul being a Jew, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. There's that word again. Paul says, listen, my humanity, I wish, I wish there was a sense in which in my humanity I could somehow separate myself from that so that they would realize and, and come to know Christ. I can't do that. These who are Israelites, to whom belongs, now here's Paul writing, here's the separation, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. The Jews had the privileges. They had the privileges from God of which Paul lists there in Romans chapter 9, of which are the patriarchs who brought God used to bring about these promises, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those from whom the Jewish people came and through whom Jesus Christ was revealed to the world. What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, you were outside of privilege. You were separate from Christ because Jesus Christ came to the Jews. You were outside of that privilege. In fact, John's gospel says it this way. He came to his own and his own received him not. So in that sense, Paul is saying, listen, Gentile believers, you were at one time outside of that. You didn't even have that going for you. The non-Jew, separate from Christ. And then he says, secondly, notice, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, also excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Excluded from being part of Israel. In other words, you're not a Jew. In other words, there were spiritual advantages to being Jewish. Jesus had said to the woman at the well in John 4, verse 22, these words, you worship that which you do not know, we worship that which we know, because salvation is from the Jews. He's not saying that no one else can be saved. He's saying, listen, what you're worshiping and your religion is meaningless. Salvation is from the Jews, and he's standing right here in front of you. Jesus wasn't making an ethnic distinction. He was just relaying the facts of salvation history. God had chosen to be known by Israel. And in that day, and in the mind of the Jew, if someone was to be saved, if someone was to have a relationship with God, they had to become a member of the commonwealth of Israel. They had to become Jewish. They had to be a proselyte. You can even see this played out in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth. Ruth being a Moabite. A Gentile woman says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, after her husband dies, 
Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Why? Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. In other words, it's significant for us to look at that and to understand that Ruth was going to see herself first as if she was Jewish before God was to be her God. In other words, Ruth understood that before she was excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and she would be like them and receive their God. The Gentiles were spiritually Christless. They were alien to Christ, the Messiah. They were spiritually homeless, alien to God's nation, the nation of Israel. And then he says, third here, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. They were alien to the promise of God. What is he saying? Well, he's just simply saying this. They were spiritual foreigners. Spiritual foreigners. They, they were not given the promises that God had given to Abraham. They, they knew nothing of God's covenant promise, which God had made with Abraham, which provided for a people for God, a land in which they would live, hence the wars today, a blessing upon blessing for them and blessing for the whole earth through them. The Gentiles had no share in those promises. And we cannot be mistaken by the words of the Apostle Paul here since he's writing to an ancient church of Gentiles that we who are Gentiles were part of that entire group. This is, in a spiritual sense, this is still true of all unbelievers who are outside the promise. Well, the Word of God says the mind that's unmoved by the power of the Holy Spirit cannot understand the things of God. They're impossible. They're alien to Him. And so the Gentiles were Christless. They were homeless. They are promiseless. Is it any wonder that Paul says, number four, you are without hope. Having no hope. Hopeless. No greater a terrifying reality than to be Hopeless. Paul says, you are without hope. You say, why they have no hope? Because they had none. Why? Because there was none to be had. They were without hope. Being without hope means that all is lost. Without hope means there is nothing. Talk about the most depressing thing in your life is to realize you're hopeless. And therefore, apart from the work of God in us, we're all hopeless. We have nothing. Is it any wonder the world lashes out against itself? Is it any wonder that people fight against each other for all kinds of various reasons? They're all straining for some kind of hope, but it's futile. Why? Because apart from God's revelation, and apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, no one can have hope of anything in this life or anything beyond this life. 
You say, why? Why is this life so hopeless? Because, as Paul says here, you're without God in the world. That's the fifth thing. They're without God. James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 17, that God is the source of every good thing. So think about it. Think logically about it. Link the dots. If God is a source of every good thing, if you are without God, then you are without any good thing. And if you are without any good thing, even though it may seem otherwise to your own fallen human mind, you are alien from Christ, you are alien to God's people, you are alien to the promises, you are alien to hope, and you are alien to God. You say, but I see people worship all the time in religions. Yeah, certainly. Ephesus wasn't without religion. They were a religious people. They had all kinds of places of worship, but they were godless, godless places. Idols are nothing and can do nothing. They are hopeless. And so Paul says, listen, this is who you were. You were dead before, and even in that position, you had no advantage. You were completely and utterly alien to everything. Alienation was your life definition. What fixes the problem? What stamps out alienation among people? What cures disunity even among God's people in the church? What cures the problem in our world for alienation between neighbors and friends and family members and, and, and countries and states and, and ideologies, what cures that problem is the same thing that cures the problem of disunity in the church. The only thing that can. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. Notice what the Apostle Paul said. This is what you were, formerly, verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How does that work? Paul says, because he himself is our peace. He made both groups one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. How? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Reconciliation has both a horizontal and a vertical reality. The answer to alienation is not social change. The answer to alienation is not greater and greater social acceptance of anything and everyone. The answer to alienation is not governmental regulations and laws for those who are seemingly in the minority. 
It isn't a form of tolerance that only tolerates those who agree. The answer is reconciliation. The answer for disunity is genuine reconciliation. And that answer is only grown in the rich soil of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and in nothing else. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in verses 13 and 14. Now in Christ Jesus. What was separated has now been brought together. You who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ through that union that God has made through Jesus Christ by granting you faith that you would believe, as verses 8 and 9 say, you have been brought near not only to God, that's the reconciliation that he's talking about there in verse 13, a reconciliation with God, the alienation of you and God is done in Jesus Christ by the sacrificial death of Christ. He is our peace And he made both into one. Now he's getting into the horizontal reality. The vertical is there in verse 13. The horizontal reality he begins to talk about and deal with here in verse 14. For Christ himself is our peace. It was he who made both into one. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What is Paul saying? He's telling us that the only thing that fixes any kind of disunity, any kind of alienation, is the genuine reality of the sacrifice of Christ which put an end to any personal kind of alienation. That's why he says, for he himself is our peace. In other words, there is no true shalom without Jesus Christ. When he says, for he himself, that's just an emphatic way of saying you can't do it on your own. You can't do it through processes. You can't do it through political means. You can't do it through bunker-busting bombs and any other kind of thing. You don't have the capacity. The only way of reconciliation is through the death of Jesus Christ. In other words, there is no peace without Christ. There is no peace. Human peace treaties without Jesus Christ are foolish. Why? Because he himself is the peacemaker. And you will never have peace with one another until you first have peace between you and God. And Christ as our peace, the peacemaker between us and God, he has been the one who makes both groups one by breaking down the barriers, the dividing wall, certainly on the Apostle Paul's mind, would have been the temple of the Jews. Paul knew it well. And around every corner was an example of alienation. No Gentile would ever have been allowed to enter the inner court. They had to remain out in what was called the court of the Gentiles. So built into the very fabric of the temple was this alienation. Not meant by God to separate people, but meant by God 
to drive them to God so that they might truly be reconciled to one another through reconciliation with Him. But the distinction was significant. In fact, Josephus, the historian of that day, writes about the temple during Paul's day, built by Herod the Great. Replaced the older temple that was built in Nehemiah's day. Much of it was overlaid with gold. Quite a sight to see, I'm sure. Sat on a raised platform. We know that today is the Temple Mount right there in Jerusalem, of which the Muslims have built their own little temple called the Dome of the Rock, the rock on Mount Moriah that they say Abraham ascended into glory from there. That's all that's inside. It's just a rock. The Arabs keep the Jews away from there. They can't go up there. When the temple was there, it was surrounded by courts. The innermost court was called the Court of the Priests. Why? Because only male members of the priest tribe of Levi were able to enter that one. The next court was called the Court of Israel. It could be entered by any male Jew. After that, there was the Court of the Women, which any Jew could enter, but it was called the Court of the Women because that's as far as the women could go to get near the holy place or the holy of holies. And all of those courtyards were seemingly on the same level. There was a little difference as you go out farther out, but not much of a difference. They were seemingly on the same level, although different. The divisions were not so significant as it was for the Gentiles. Because from the court of women, you would go down five steps to a level area in which there was built another five-foot stone wall. That went around the whole temple area, and then another level space was there. And from there, you'd go down another 14 steps down to the court of Gentiles. So Josephus says that in the intervals of the wall in that court, there were inscriptions that said, no foreigner is permitted to enter the Jewish courts upon penalty of death. So if you weren't Jewish, basically it just said, if you're a trespasser, you're going to be killed. So picture in your mind what Paul is saying here to these Gentile believers. He's saying Christ has removed the wall. No more there is there those distinctions. No more is there alienation between people in Christ and through Christ. All people, it doesn't matter who you are, Gentile, Jew, woman, man, slave, or free man, you have access to God and you have a spiritual unity. And so this is what Paul is saying. The answer to the problems in our world, beloved, is not social. Don't buy the lie that if we just get it socially correct, we'll, we'll have a, a utopia here. No, it is not social. It is not political and never will be political. It isn't even intellectual. If they just get smart enough, they'll overcome their problems. No. The answer is spiritual. Like the answer is found in genuine reconciliation that only comes through Jesus Christ. Notice Paul says, by abolishing in his flesh, verse 15, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. 
that in himself he might make the two into one new man. Establishing peace. Interesting that he says it that way because in verse 10 we are his workmanship, the workmanship of God. God has made us into a new person. So that what? He might reconcile them, verse 16, both in one body to God. So you see, through Jesus Christ, there is reconciliation of human to human who by faith in Christ love Christ and love God. And through Christ, we have reconciliation with God. Alienation is gone. It's now reconciliation. Because he has reconciled us in his body, the one body, to God through the cross. And by it, he put to death the enmity. That which separates. The Jews had the law, the Gentiles don't. It was the law written on their hearts, Paul says in Romans. The Jews said, you can't keep it. You're not part of us. The Gentiles said, we don't care. We don't like you anyway. Jesus came and broke it all apart. And he preached peace to you who were far away. Peace to the Gentiles and peace to those who were near. How are Jew and Gentile saved? The same way. Jesus Christ. Not two different ways. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Through Jesus Christ. All the external attempts to try to keep yourself righteous before God fix the alienation that's this vertical alienation that you have with God because your sin is worthless. It's foolish. It'll never work. You could never do it right. It's been done away with in Jesus Christ. How did Jesus abolish the law? I mean, these ordinances, these this commandments which contained ordinances, this enmity which is the law, how did Jesus abolish it? Well, he fulfilled it. That's how he abolished it. He nullifies it by fulfilling it all perfectly. That's what he said he was going to do. That's what he promised he would do. Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And here is Paul saying he abolished the law. He abolished the commandments. He did away with it. No, he fulfilled it. Christ fulfilled the law's requirements. And in doing so, he set aside its requirements for any of us. Doesn't mean the commandments aren't things we don't, we, we shouldn't follow today. No, it just means that now in Christ and by the power of the Spirit, we can walk according to the commandments of God. In Christ, there is no condemnation. Why? Because he has fulfilled that which we could not. This is why it's on the heart and mind of Paul continuously, for by grace you have been saved. That's why he interjects it even there back in the early part of the verses in chapter 2. Even when you were dead in your transgressions, verse 5, God made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
This is the crux of the matter. Listen, neither one of you got here on your own. Neither one of you made it into this economy of God, this reconciliation with God, this doing away with the alienation that you had with God by yourself. And therefore, why would you ever remain alienated from one another? You didn't get in by your doing. God created us by means of a union with Him. In Himself, in Christ, a new man. We are new in Christ. Jesus didn't just take Jewish things and Christianize them. He didn't assume Gentile world thinking and Christianize it. He didn't do that. No, He brought peace between both. How? By making a new man in Him. We couldn't do it in our old self. We had to be new. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus, he says in verse 10. Created for good works. Not just to sit around, look at others and say, hey, we're saved, look at us. We got it all together. No, so that we should walk in those. In other words, we are the new people in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. We're the new people in Christ. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are on this earth. It doesn't matter what your economic status is on this earth. It doesn't matter the amount of melanin or lack of melanin in your skin. It doesn't matter if you are Arab or Jew. None of that matters. Doesn't matter if you're Asian or Russian. Why? Because in Christ we are one. You know Jesus Christ by faith. You are one. You're a new person. All of the dividing walls that used to separate us before are gone. Beloved, this is the answer for our world. This is the answer for alienation. This is the answer for for what is called in our day and age racism. Let's, Let's be clear. Racism is not because there are different races on this planet. Racism is simply ethnic hatred. One ethnicity hates another because they don't like them. But they are of the human race. This is the answer for prejudice. This is the answer for any kind of ethnic cruelty. This is the answer in homes that are broken apart because of divorce. Marital issues that cause people to say we have irreconcilable differences. You know what they're just saying? We want to alienate from one another. However, this is the answer for selfishness. And hopelessness. Not social. Not governmental. Not economic. It's Jesus Christ. It's only in Him that there is hope. Because only through Him do we have eternal alienation taken care of with God the Father. 
But here's the kicker. The world outside is never going to know that kind of reality. They're never going to have an example of that reconciliation, that kind of peace, unless it is seen in us. We have a huge responsibility, like the Jews did, like Israel did, but the world, a huge responsibility to be the example to the world of reconciliation and not retaliation and hatred. That's a problem in the church, and we have no voice in the world. If we can't even get along with one another. How dare we ever say anything to a world who doesn't get along with each other? We have no bearing in the truth if we're going to stay alienated from one another. True unity is only found in Jesus Christ. Only found in Jesus Christ. For He Himself is our peace. Let's pray. Lord, you must increase, we must decrease. We want to hate what you hate. Act as you would act. Respond as you would respond. Live to your glory and honor. And so where evil exists, we want to see evil extinguished. Where righteousness flourishes, we want to see righteousness flourish all the more. And so, Lord, we pray that we in our daily lives would be those who would live by means of the truth and where there is alienation that is not based on truth, Lord, that we would be reconcilers. That we would come together because of our common bond as one in Christ. Help us proclaim the truth, live for the truth, stand on the truth with all humility and glorify you by being like Christ. Accomplish these things in us for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.